Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. On one of our regular Friday afternoon trips to the library, a particular book caught my eye for the rich, colorful, and intricately detailed painting on the cover. The title of the book, Grandpa Cacao, was printed over a warm, beautiful image of a strong and loving grandfather smiling down at a little girl holding a chocolate bar. Once home, I was delighted to read to my sons this story of a little girl baking a chocolate cake with her father. Through this act, the child is connected across generations, climates, and continents to her grandfather in the Ivory Coast. Today, I'm incredibly honored to have as my guest, Liz Zunin, the author and illustrator of this beautiful book. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule to get on the phone with me. It's my pleasure. Well, first of all, tell me about the little girl. Is that you? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so the little girl in the book is me. Um, me and my dad are baking a chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. In my real life, I never got to meet my um, my grandfather in the Ivory Coast. He died. Both of my Ivorian grandparents died way before I was born. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I've never seen um, photographs of them either. So they've kind of always... Really? Yeah. Each been like these mythical f- figures in my, in my mind, in my imagination. So... Yeah, I wanted to write a story kind of honoring my grandfather and the family tradition of growing and harvesting cacao, which makes chocolate. So you've never seen photographs of either of your Ivorian grandparents. But one thing that was so charming about the book was how on so many different places you name physical characteristics that you imagine to share with your Mm -hmm. grandfather. So the shape of your feet and ears. So now those are all imagined. Well, some of them come from descriptions that my father and and other family members have given. I grew up knowing my American grandparents very well. Mm -hmm. So I've always kind of been fascinated with, well, if I ever was able to meet my grandparents from the Ivory Coast, I wonder if they would look like me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we we might be the same skin color. Mm -hmm. My father has very small ears, and so do I, so I gave grandpa... (laughs) In the book, small ears as well, and yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Do you have other characteristics that you share with your father? You know, non-physical characteristics that you imagine also would connect you to your grandmother or grandfather. Um, yeah, I think probably stubbornness. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, and like like a can-do attitude, mm-hmm. um, and I think probably like a very quiet and calm personality. Although mm-hmm. I hear that my grandfather. He was regarded as as like one of the elders in the village. He wasn't the village chief or anything official like that. But I hear that when there were disputes within family members or, or, or friends in the village, that they would come to my grandfather and some of his peers to help them um, solve their disputes. Mm. So I imagine that he, he had this like regal air about him and he like mm. um, helped people with their problems and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you drew him that way, too. There's such a pride in the way that he carries himself, but also such a gentleness as well. Yeah, I would I would go to this man (laughs) if I had a dispute. (laughs) Does your dad share those characteristics as well? Um, some of them, yes. My dad is not as tall as I believe my grandfather was. My my little brother is very, very tall. 
my father is just very like calm and serene and he just has a lot of knowledge to impart on people and he loves telling stories and and just I love listening to the sound of his voice so I, I imagine that my grandfather must have had a, a very charming voice and way about him as well. Mm, that's lovely. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think the book specifies where the little girl lives. No, it doesn't. You're okay. Right. So tell me about you. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Albany, Albany, New York. Um, that's where my mom is from. But at the time, my parents were already living in the Ivory Coast. So I, I always like to say I came to Albany to be born. <laughs> went, went to the Ivory Coast when I was, I think, three months old. So we lived there until I was 12, almost 13. Okay. So I did most of my schooling, including up until seventh grade in the Ivory Coast. Okay. So we came back right before eighth grade. So I did eighth grade and high school here in the United States. But when we were living in the Ivory Coast, we came back to Albany almost every summer to spend about six weeks with my American grandparents. So we were always kind of going back and forth. And then there was a point of time, I think, when I was five, five and six years old, where we lived here um, in the Albany area when my brother was born. So we were always kind of jumping back and forth. It wasn't a total culture shock when I came back just before I turned 13 mm -hmm. to the United States. We had mm -hmm. cousins and friends that we knew from going back and forth, but it was definitely an adjustment. Yeah. Mm. Is it too much to say you had two homes? Yeah, that's, that's how I see it, two homes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. When you were in the Ivory Coast, did you observe the labor of cacao farmers like Grandpa Cacao? Not personally, no. Um, okay. The Ivory Coast is the world's leading exporter of cacao. So that's like a point of pride for people in the Ivory Coast. We call it the, the land of cacao. De mm -hmm. de cacao. <laughs> so, you know, there's always elements of farming and cacao and and also coffee um, featured in a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. national nationalistic pride <laughs> elements. And, and I had seen plenty of, of cacao farming and elements of that on TV. Mm -hmm. But we lived in the city called Abidjan, which is the economic capital of the country. So we, had a, we lived in a high-rise apartment building. We had a car. There were paved roads everywhere. We had air conditioning and electricity and all of these modern amenities that I think many people assume that those yep. in Africa live without. I can say we were pretty privileged in that sense. So I never personally experienced life in a small village, near a farm, experiencing, you know, physical labor and, and all of these things. So my father has told me a lot of stories about following his father to the, the cacao and coffee plantation and all of the work that the farmers would do to get these fruits ready to just mm. sell to these cacao buyers that would basically middlemen between the farmer and the chocolate factory. And I've seen footage basically on television. What was your father's experience growing up as the son of a cacao farmer? And would you say that would be the same experience of a cacao farmer now? Oh, good question. Yeah, I, I do think that the life of cacao farmers and their families are very similar today as they were, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. All the chocolate that we eat comes from small 
cacao farms, small family-owned cacao farms. Mm. Um, so the process of growing and harvesting and preparing the beans has not really changed at all. Mm. When my dad was a kid, when he would go with his father to the plantation, after they would cut down the cocoa pods from the beans, from the, the trees, cut them open, scoop out the beans, they used to dig big pits in the ground that were they that they lined with big, thick banana tree leaves. Mm-hmm. And they put the beans in those pits. They covered them up with more banana leaves and they let them ferment for days and days and days until um, they churned kind of like a light brown color. And I think today there, there's there's less um, putting digging pits in the ground, and I think most of it today is done in in like um, wooden boxes mm. or crates. But the process of waiting a certain amount of time before the beans are able to then be taken out of the boxes or the pits and then dried underneath the sun, I think that's pretty similar as well. My dad, my dad and my grandfather were drying the cacao beans on these big cement floors outside and today i think of a lot of the farmers do that but they also have um kind of like raised platforms okay off Mm -hmm. of the ground um, Mm -hmm. where they they set up the the beans to dry in the sun yeah you talk about if the rain is coming yeah they would rush out to to cover the beans and today they might they probably have smartphones where they can <laughs> the weather forecast and if it's going to rain they can probably you know scoop up the beans and bring them inside before the rain actually comes. None of this work is is mechanized or there aren't any robots or or machines that do all this. It's all like hands mm-hmm. and arms and and legs and shoulders doing this this stuff that takes a lot of time and love and effort. Yeah, I'm fascinated that you said all chocolate comes from small family-owned farms. Yes. So if you want to pick one of the big names, mm-hmm. they they don't have their own plants. They all that's go correct. to individual par- farmers. Is that amazing to you? I'm yeah, that's of- amazing. And so the bigger chocolate companies, they want to make sure that their the flavor of their chocolate is consistent year oh. to year. Mm-hmm. And, and every time you buy you know, a Hershey bar, for example, and you bite into it, you have a very specific taste that you're expecting. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the big companies, um, their cacao comes from many, you know, maybe maybe 10 or 12 or more different farms so that they can use some beans from this farm, some beans from that farm, some beans from that farm and this farm, and they mix them all together. Okay. So multiple ingredients to make one one flavoring chocolate. Many of the small fair trade chocolate companies will work with one farm, one cooperative of farms where the consistency of flavor is not as important as the quality of product and the conditions in which the cacao has been harvested. So just just like anything that grows from the ground that we eat, the flavor is influenced by whatever is in the soil whatever else is growing nearby, the the humidity, the sun, the rain, the the goal is to to promote a sustainable way of living for these farmers. So the the consistency of flavor of each chocolate bar is right. not as important as the conditions in which the cacao was harvested. Right. 
So if I'm understanding correctly, the part that's not fair is that if you're one of maybe 10 farmers and you happen to have a bad season, you might not get paid for your labor that season because a company will choose from the other nine. Um, Exactly. Okay. I see. Okay. I did not know that. Okay. And and many of the, the cacao farmers that grow the trees and harvest the fruits they are the poorest farmers in their countries. They live below the pop, you know, the average poverty line of, of their own countries. Mm-hmm. So they grow and cultivate and harvest and prepare this fruit that is going to turn into this beautiful, sexy, desirable product mm-hmm. that they can't even afford. Many of these mm-hmm. cow farmers are cannot afford to purchase a, a bar of chocolate that was made, you know, in the United States or in Europe. Mm-hmm. They're, they're often struggling trying to, to decide whether they should continue harvesting cacao or move on to other other crops, which are maybe easier to grow and less, um, you know, finicky with weather conditions. I think a lot of cacao farmers okay. in the Ivory Coast have have decided to grow rubber. Oh, okay. You, can, you can't see. get you can't you probably can't get rich as a cacao farmer. <laughs> I'm curious about how political cacao farming is. So for instance, well, let's talk about the book first. So for instance, in the book, you talk about the way that the labor was shared among the villagers. So Mm -hmm. um, if these are like many, many, I I mean, we see, I mean, it's the Hunger Games, right? We see what happens Mm -hmm. when, when there's scarcity in any product, it tends to breed a competitive spirit mm-hmm. among one another. But this book gives the impression that it was a very, very collaborative spirit. Um, so how does that work in terms of competition versus collaboration? When my father talks about what he experienced as a child, he he puts it in terms that like mm-hmm. if one farmer is doing well, then that means that farmer might be able to afford, you know, to provide some school supplies or food for the farmer or the family that isn't doing very well. So I think sometimes there are, are problems figuring out, you know, where this farmer's land ends and the next farmer's land begins. You can say, well, my grandfather was harvesting on this land for the past 50 or 60 years. But then the next guy might say, well, actually, that's my grandfather's land. So there, there might not be paperwork and maps to show you exactly where this parcel of land yeah, and someone else's territory begins. And, and probably the lines were fluid over exactly. the years, honestly, as you had exactly. larger families that could do a little more or smaller families or whatever. Right. Mm. And, and I've read that recently in the Ivory Coast, many farmers have started, there's, there's a lot of slash and burn in farming in many countries, but many farmers in the Ivory Coast have resorted to now growing their cacao crop in protected rainforests. Okay. So there's been a lot of kind of disputes between the farmers and the government and, and talking about like, who well, who really owns this land? Well, if I can't grow what I've been growing for 100 years on my land, well, I can grow it over there because that's a tropical, healthy mm-hmm. forest. Mm. Um, but then the government can come in and say, well, no, you can't grow here because this doesn't belong to you. But, you know, maybe where your grandfather grew his his crop, maybe that now belongs to the government because it's part of the tropical forest. So there's always there's always mm-hmm. I think, disputes going growing on between who owns what land and who has the right to profit from that land. 
even mm-hmm. if the profit is, you know, very small. Yeah, it's, right. It's yeah. it's but it's what it's what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that I guess is my other question. So we always like to go to a an easy and a simple narrative, you know. And I, I guess the narrative is the big companies are bad, the farmers are good. Mm-hmm. What's right a Disney movie. But I guess I, <laughs> but I also wonder, um, and and I, I'm not wanting to discount. I want to ask more about fair trade and fair trade options. I definitely want to make sure we all um, leave this interview certain about how we can move forward with that. So I, I don't mean to be sarcastic about that at all. Mm-hmm. But I I do wonder about this idea of, like you mentioned, as a little girl, you saw it on TV that mm-hmm. there's such a point of pride in this exporting mm-hmm. of chocolate, and yet. The actual farmers, and you you write about this in your book also, and I thought it was beautiful the way that you laid this out, how you put Mm -hmm. so much dignity in the work. You know, you didn't um, paint the people in this book as as poor or downtrodden or anything like that. It was so dignified, but you did point out the injustice of the fact that they could not buy chocolate themselves. Mm -hmm. And I thought the way you did it was, um, it was very poignant done in a way that it was easy for me to point out to my children. Mm -hmm. And, but I guess my question is how much is the country profiting off of the fact that farmers are producing all this cacao and yet they are struggling. So is there also another, I guess, bad guy? (laughs) Do you see my question? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? A lot of the big companies that work with a combination of cacao beans from multiple farms, they have started trying to implement programs to help put more money towards the farmers so that their kids can can go to school rather than drop out of school so that they can work on the cacao farms at a young age. There are not many chocolate manufacturing factories in the Ivory Coast itself. There are a couple of um, young people that have started working with family farms and also making the chocolates in within the country of the Ivory Coast. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of like keeping the profits in the cultivation, the harvesting, and also paying people a fair wage to actually make the chocolates and sell the chocolate itself. That's great. So at this point, so first of all, I fear that I'm speaking ignorantly. So can you distinguish between cacao and cocoa for me? Uh, Yes, yes. Those two words are used interchangeably, cacao and cocoa. But cacao, C-A-C-A-O, is the term for the fruit. Right. The tree. It's called Theobroma cacao, the fruit of the gods. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Okay. Um, so cacao is the fruit, the tree, the bean, and cocoa, C-O-C-O-A, uh-huh. refers to the products that are made from the cacao. So, but they're used interchangeably. Okay. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. So um, back to the original question. It's it's awesome that young people have come along and started to do more. So prior to that, at what point was it actually exported as a fruit? Had it been turned into the cocoa product and then it was just manufactured into chocolate here? Like where where was that dividing line? Yeah. What is exported are the dried beans. Okay. They're packed up in, in these big like burlap sacks. And then they are sold by the farmer to the cacao buyer. 
So the buyer will export that to a chocolate factory. Mm. Might be in Europe, might be in the United States, might be in Asia. Okay. It hasn't been roasted. It hasn't been crushed. The, the outer hull of the bean has not been separated from the nib or the, the inner part of the bean. Okay. There's a lot of work left to be done. Yes. Right. Yes. And you're saying, why shouldn't Ivorians do that work and right. get paid exactly. for it and keep so, all so those a lot of, there? Like mm. young Ivorians have, have decided, well, we need to, what people want is chocolate. What mm. is worth a lot of money is chocolate. So let's see if we can figure out how we can make our own Ivorian grown and made and manufactured chocolate. Mm. Absolutely. You know, the little girl in this book enjoys chocolate very much, and mm-hmm. she and Brie, it's actually a celebration and an honoring yes. of her family. Yeah. And you, I assume, enjoy chocolate? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with, a, with a clear conscience? Yes, yeah. Yes. So what should we consider as we buy and enjoy chocolate, and as we make the chocolate cake recipe you gave us? Mm. Um, well, I'd like us to consider the fact that uh, many, many hands – and a lot of love touched this chocolate before it mm. ever arrived, you know, at our grocery store. We can just, you know, pay a dollar for a bar of chocolate. Mm. Yeah. So what we can do as consumers is, I would say, buying fair trade is always an, a number one, you know, top on my list. Because mm-hmm. we've become accustomed to, to chocolate being such an easily accessible commodity in the United mm-hmm. States. And I think... The cacao itself has kind of been overtaken by adding a lot of sugar and a lot of milk and a lot of other flavorings. And and I always like to say chocolate is not candy. Oh, tell me chocolate about that. Chocolate is chocolate. I, I love candy. I love sugar. The, the number one characteristic of candy is that it's sweet and it's made from sugar and sugar is the first ingredient. But sugar is, should not be the first ingredient in chocolate. It should be cacao. Oh, I really appreciate that distinction. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an unsweetened. I will eat a bar of unsweetened chocolate. If you want to eat chocolate. I agree. <laughs> yeah. We should look for, for chocolate bars that have a, like a high cacao percentage. I think a lot of the, the smaller fair trade companies make an effort to not add a lot of other ingredients to the chocolate. And they're, they're letting the cacao kind of speak for itself. But I love sweets. I love white chocolate, which a lot of people say is not chocolate. I mean, technically it is chocolate because it comes from cacao, but it has, you know, a, a high concentration of the cacao fat rather than the cacao nib in it. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Oh, you're teaching me so much, Liz. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so when the, when the, those, those dried cacao beans arrive at the factory, they're kind of like crushed and separated in the kind of the fat part is taken out and it might be put back in to help thicken the chocolate that the chocolate bar that's going to be made or it just might be taken out and then made to use to make white chocolate. Mm-hmm. I see. So you're you're arguing that not only are we directly contributing to farmers when we buy fair trade but we're actually receiving a more a more delicious product. Mhm. Right, a more maybe pure product. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and um, talk a little bit more about you and your family and your food memories. So first of all, you gave me a chocolate cake recipe to make, which is actually in the book. Yeah. Okay. And then you also gave me, I 
can you tell me how to pronounce the other recipe that you gave me? Yeah, riz au gras. Oh my, riz au gras. Yes. Okay, is that French? French, because the Ivory Coast was a French yes. colony. Okay. It means, I guess, technically, it translates to like mm, rice with fat or rice with grease. <laughs> okay. I think maybe it used to be cooked with like pork fat or something like that. Got it. Okay. And both of these recipes came from your father's side. Um, well, the Rio Gras, yes, came from my father's side. The chocolate cake is kind of a, I mean, my mother was the one baking okay. mostly as a kid um, when we were kids. And she used to make this like French gâteau chocolat cake. Mm. And she would also make American brownies. So this, this chocolate celebration cake recipe is kind of influenced by her, her chocolate cake that she used to make when we were kids. Okay, so did you develop the recipe for this book, or this is one that she kind of developed as the years went on? Um, I kind of developed it based on her recipe that she kind of remembered from memory, because we, we can't find the cookbook that, <laughs> that it came from. And then also, I, you know, changed a couple of things and tried to make it more accessible to a younger audience. In this, my chocolate cake recipe, the celebration cake, it is made with melting the actual like baking chocolate bar with butter because I thought that that made a more interesting visual for me to to create as an artist versus using cocoa powder right which is what I see yes well it is that is I think one of the most beautiful sights in the world that creamy um shiny oh it's it's so chocolate and butter oh my god (laughs) so do you have memories associated with this cake yeah. Or a um, similar cake. So your mom's yeah, gâteau. Similar, yeah, like, like a French gâteau chocolat recipe. Yeah. Baking in the kitchen was always a treat as a kid. I had a, a phase with my friends where we would make beignets. Oh, wow. That's meringues. a tough job. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah. We had a lot of fun in the kitchen. But yeah, yeah my, when my mom would like sit down to bake something, it was always a special treat. Baked, you know, baked cakes are not part of a lot of, I think, African foods and recipes there's a lot of Mm -hmm. breads and other baked things but like sweet cakes with and especially with chocolate is not a traditional thing Mm. I think maybe when when she was feeling homesick for Mm. the United States we would make brownies and chocolate chip cookies and oh she always around Christmas time these days my mom always refers to the fact that when we lived in the Ivory Coast it was so humid that we couldn't oh. we couldn't make Christmas cookies because the, oh. the the dough would just be so sticky. So she has given me all of her cookie cutters from when she was a kid in in Albany. Oh. So now now that I'm living in Albany and, and live in my own house, I'm starting to use my mom's cookie cutters that we were never able to use myself when I was a kid because it was just too hot and humid. So that's why I wondered. In the recipe that you give in the book, at the very end, you say if you want to make a special snowflake cake, um, you can use a stencil and powdered sugar. And I could not get the snowflake connection, but that's your way of honoring your mom's heritage in this book. Yes, exactly. Oh, oh, that's so lovely. Okay, well, I'm definitely going to do that in the photographs now that I understand (laughs) that. And then um, I also just really like the idea of like, the story in the current day, the little girl and her dad, mm. just that story taking place like in the winter and the first, the first spread where the story begins, where the text begins in the book 
if you look out the window, there are like little snowflakes falling down. And then if you turn, I think the next page when the dad and the girl are talking about the elephants roaming and you see the map of, well, the, the, the outline of the continent of Africa with a little, the cutout where the Ivory Coast is, there's a, a couple of snowflakes kind of sneaking in. Yes. Yes, as just a way of connecting kind of what's happening in her mind and what's happening in her reality. Mm. Yeah, and also just I wanted to make a contrast between a cold climate and a hot climate. I see. Yeah, and one other snow reference is my favorite book growing up in the Ivory Coast was The Snowy Day. Yes, Ezra Jack Keats. Yes, written and illustrated by Ezra Jack Keats. So I wanted to have kind of a nod to that book and the snowflakes in that book um, in my chocolate book. Tell me about the um, the Rizoga that your dad made. So first of all, I think you gave me three names. It could be that Senegalese rice, and I forget the third. Yeah. Okay, um, the third was Jollof rice. Jollof. So what do the other two names mean? Um, I well, it's I Senegal, think, obviously. Yeah, Senegal. I think I think Jollof refers to a people or a language. Um, okay. Yes, many Americans might be familiar with that same dish just with the, the, the name of jollof rice or okay. rice yeah okay and your dad made this mm-hmm. you said it's part of why your mom how he hooked your mom <laughs> yeah I mean he like he can cook and he can vacuum so yeah <laughs> okay and what memories do you have associated with it I remember sitting in in the Ivory Coast we our our dinner table was like a big round dark wood table and my mom would buy these beautiful tablecloths round tablecloths either with like a patterned african fabric or a lot of times our tablecloths had like um a blue batik design of Mm -hmm. nature or elephants or other animals so it was always a special occasion when like mom put the fancy tablecloth Mm. the beautiful batik tablecloth on the table and um, we would have this rioga, which had a lot of different elements in it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other dishes that we ate in the Ivory Coast, you know, the rice, the white rice would be separate, one one element, and then the meat, and then the sauce, and then the vegetables. So there may be like three areas, three separate areas of food on your plate. Yes. Mm-hmm. But with this rioga, all of these these ingredients are cooked together. So you can get like a big heaping, I would get a big heaping serving of this on my plate and just dig in, putting a, you know, putting a forkful in my mouth and having all of those flavors like immediately reacting with each other and just kind of like Mm. a party, having a party in my mouth. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, it's funny. I, as I put this dish together, I was having that exact thought process. I was thinking, why don't we do this more often? You're infusing the rice with the chicken just forms like a broth that everything cooks in. And then you have that. I think tomato sauce is always comforting, right? There's something that's just inherently comforting about it. And it all happens in one pot and it's more delicious. Why don't we do this more often? The last time I I watched my dad make this dish, I was like, oh, this is like the African paella. Mm, and then I was yes. like, Wait, maybe every culture has like a, a dish like this with yes. rice and then all these other ingredients kind of cooked together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. I didn't have any leftovers. It was demolished. I mean, and every bite was like, yes, every bite. My kids were like, this is so good. That's good to hear. Good reviews, dad. Thanks, dad. Yeah, yeah. Way to go. So the one last thing I would love to talk about is I can barely express my admiration for it. The artwork in this book, Liz, is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing this. It was like, obviously, the most personal thing that I've ever illustrated and the first story really that I that I have ever written. Mm. And it also showcased several techniques. Yes. And I liked the fact that you chose a couple different techniques because, you know, young children, I'm often surprised by how much young children can enjoy books while understanding so little. And I think that it would have been very easy for a young child to get lost in this idea. You are connecting so much, right? Past Mm -hmm. and present, New York and the Ivory Coast. But because you had the two different techniques, I feel that it was very easy for um, even my my youngest, who's five, to understand and follow what was happening and to see these connections. So I think that was a really good idea. Yeah, I think when I'm when I've been developing other things that I'm going to both write and illustrate, and even when I'm just illustrating something, I always try to come up with a visual language. Like, what are the tools that I'm going to use? What are the different media that I'm going to use? And how are those going to tell the story separately from the words? Mm. So my my goal is that if there were no words in this book, or any book that I that I illustrate, I would hope that just by the images, and seeing things repeating or colors repeating or textures repeating that the reader might be able to understand what's happening in the story without the words to expressly say that to them. What an interesting concept. Yes. A visual language. Yes. And I think that is a very succinct way of saying what I was trying to say, because I think it really worked. I think, um, again, like you said, because of that repeating, those repeating textures and techniques. So Mm -hmm. tell, tell my listeners a little bit about the techniques that you used in this book. Sure. Well, the little girl and her dad, in the present day are painted with oil paint and their clothing and the different um, tables and curtains in those current day scenes are made from collage. So cut paper or fabric that I cut out into the shape of, for example, my dad's sweater or the lace curtains hanging on the, the window are our collage. And then the scenes where the grandfather is in the past doing the work on the cacao farm the grandfather himself in the past is depicted with white silkscreen. Mm. So he looks like a ghostly figure. He's mm-hmm. he's not as realistically depicted as the girl and her dad in the current day mm-hmm. making the chocolate cake. But he's kind of like this bigger, larger than life figure um, roaming around in white silkscreen, white paint on top of um, like the tropical painted backgrounds of the Ivory Coast with the the palm trees and the beautiful fruits and vegetables at the market. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to show like past and present. Mm. So how do you do a silkscreen? What's the technique there? Well, I've got to buy the actual silkscreen. So it's a, it's a wooden frame that has a Uh piece of silk, I think stapled to the the inside of the wooden frame. Mm -hmm. And then I buy screen filler liquid. Mm Mm-hmm. 
which is a paint that's a like a dark red terracotta color. Mm-hmm. So to create the image that I'm going to silk screen, I need to draw my my character on my actual screen with pencil. And then I take tiny little paint brushes and big paint brushes too, but I start with tiny paint brushes and I kind of paint the outline of the, the, the face, the body, the features. And I paint with my screen filler liquid, all of the negative space. Mm. I'm only thinking about kind of what is there and what is not there. So once my screen filler ink has dried on my screen, I usually paint over it with a second layer again of screen filler ink. When it's time to print that image on my final illustration, I take my white screen um, screen printing ink. Mm-hmm. I pour that on my screen and I take a plastic um, squeegee and I pass the squeegee over the white ink that I have poured on my screen and I, I kind of push it past the drawing that I have painted with my screen filler ink. And everywhere that I've painted with my screen filler ink, my, my negative spaces blocks my white ink right. from passing mm-hmm. through. So I'm fascinated by how you combine the collage and the oil paints. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking at a page right now. And you have your father. So he's painted with oil paint. And then he's wearing an apron. That's a beautiful quilted collage. And then on top of that, you know, in front of him, he's holding a Pyrex measuring cup that's kind of clear. Yes. And you see the apron behind it. So again, just from a technique standpoint, how do you put this all together? Do you actually cut out... Oh, yeah. The apron. Oh, really? And a you- lot of my time is spent cutting tiny little squares oh, and gluing them onto my painting once once the oil part that I've painted is dry. Yeah, for the That's actual amazing. Pyrex, I took a piece of tracing paper, which is kind of see-through, and I cut that out into the shape of the Pyrex, Put glue that, you know, on top of his apron as, as if his hand is holding it. And then I took white acrylic paint and I painted the highlights on that Pyrex Mm. cup with white paint. Mm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then how do you transfer all of this to to digital? Well, luckily, that's not my job. (laughs) Oh, so So you literally turn in these works of art to your publisher. Oh, wow. I finished creating, you know, my maybe 16 or 18 final illustrations. I pack them up in a box Mm. And send them via FedEx or UPS overnight to the publisher. Oh my goodness! How much insurance? I mean, does your heart beat when you drop them off at the? Yes. And I, you know, I was like, keep the tracking number, and I'm tracking to make sure that it's arriving and it's on schedule. And sometimes they scan them in house or they photograph them. Mm-hmm. But I'm very lucky because I get them all back. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Mm. Never had any any artwork lost. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's funny you mentioned the, the back cover with the elephants. That was a funny story because after I finished creating all of the interior illustrations, we were talking about what we should put on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. So at the last minute, I had to create uh, the painted book jacket. So when I actually sent the artwork that has this this sunrise with the, the green and the palm trees and the elephants... Mm. I had to tape this piece, these two pieces of artwork into my UPS box because they were not dry. (gasps) 
no way. So I, I, I have to like, like write directions. Like once you open the box, only touch the border, wait a couple of days before you send this off to be scanned or place it face down on the scanner because it is not dry. Oh, does it take that long for oil paints to dry? Yeah. So oh, oftentimes wow. my, my struggle comes from literally waiting for the paint to dry so that I could. What other projects are you working on now? Um, I'm doing a couple of book signings on Friday for two new books that will be out in January. Oh, two new books. Yeah. Oh, how exciting. What yeah. What are these about? Um, the first book is called As Big As the Sky mm-hmm. um, by author Carolyn Rose. And it's a, about a brother and sister in Malawi, East Africa, who are the best of friends. But the brother gets sent away to school and the sister does not. Oh. So she tries to use her, her creativity to make these crafts that she tries to sell in hopes to earn the bus fare to go um, to go visit him at his new school. But nobody wants to, to buy what she has made. Mm. So it's kind of shining a light on the fact that there are a lot of girls around the world that just do not get to go to school just because they are girls. Mm. Yeah. And the other book is um, Bedtime for Sweet Creatures by Nikki Grimes. Mm-hmm. And it's a very um, fun, fantastical kind of bedtime story for toddlers. It's about a, a little toddler that doesn't want to go to bed. So on every <laughs> page, he pretends to be a different animal. So there's kind of like a different animal emanation <laughs> on every page. So it's it's a I think it's the most like fantastical, whimsical story that I've illustrated yet. But it was a little, oh. I think I finished those this past spring. Mm-hmm. So since then, I've been working on two more books. One is a book called Bottle Tops, The mm-hmm. Art of El Anatsui. And that is a biography of um, a Ghanaian artist okay. who's alive today, who's very prolific. So he makes art using recycled liquor bottle caps. And he makes them into these huge wall hangings that drape and they look like fabric in their absolutely amazing and um, the other book that I'm working on is called Off to See the Sea Oh, working, working on the illustrations for that oh and I should say Bottle Tops um, is written by Alison Goldberg Okay. and Off to See the Sea is written by Nikki Grimes and that is the follow up book to the um, Bedtime for Sweet Creatures book that will be out this January oh so off to see the sea, we have the same character who didn't want to go to bed in the previous book. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, on this day, he's experiencing bath time. <laughs> he's having a lot of fun at bath mm-hmm. time. Those sound amazing for um, my nieces, gifts for my <laughs> nieces. Tell us all the ways that people can follow along with you and your really extraordinary work. Oh, gosh. Well, Facebook at Elizabeth Zunon Illustrator, Instagram at Liz Zunon, that's L-I-Z-Z-U-N-O-N, mm-hmm. and Twitter at Elizabeth Zunon. And my website is www.lizzunon.com. That's L-I-Z-Z-U-N-O-N. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really, ins- <laughs> I'm in awe of your artwork. I can't even say I'm inspired because I could never, <laughs> I could never uh-huh. even dream of doing anything like this, but I'm really moved by your artwork. I was super touched by your story and I'm so honored that you took the time to talk with me. So thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Mm. 
You're welcome. You can find links to all of Liz's contact information, as well as links to Grandpa Cacao, Bedtime for Sweet Creatures, and As Big as the Sky in the show notes for this episode. Simply go to thestoriedrecipe.com, click on the podcast episodes tab, then go to episode eight. You can also navigate to the recipes tab to find the Rio Gras recipe and the chocolate celebration cake. Thanks again to Liz. On my website, you can also find weekly episodes released every Wednesday, or you can subscribe via your favorite player. You can join the storied recipe community by following me over on Instagram and tagging any of these recipes with hashtag storied recipe. My guests love to see their cherished recipes enjoyed by others. Finally, please know that I truly believe everyone has a story to share, and I would love to hear and photograph yours. Please reach out. And in the meantime, have a great week, my friends.